Okay, let's pray before we get into God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together. Um, we thank you for giving us one another, um, giving us the church to, um, through which to be encouraged, exhorted, built up, helped along the way, um, held accountable, reminded of who you are and what you've done for us. Um, help us not to, to forsake um, this great gift of your grace that you've given us. Um, and we ask that you would speak to us today through your word. Um, show us yourself, show us your goodness. Um, ask just for open eyes, open ears, and hearts ready and willing to receive um, your true and powerful and effective word. And ask that it would bear fruit in our lives and in our church. And then as we go out into our community, that, would bear, that we would bear fruit um, in it. In your name, amen. All right, so we've spent the last few weeks going through a fairly meaty section of Hebrews, chapters 8 through 10, this kind of unit that is chapters 8 through 10. And if you've been with us, you've seen the author comparing and contrasting Jesus to this Old Testament system of sacrifices and priests and cleansing rituals in the temple. And we've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had been doing through that system among ancient Israel. That all of those um, sacrifices, cleansing rituals, the, the, temples, or the temple and the priests were all a kind of shadow and copy, a couple of words that Hebrews uses, a shadow and copy that they were pointing forward to the real thing, which is Jesus. So this has been maybe a, a little more difficult section to get through, but now we get to the, the conclusion and the point of it all. And so in the passage before us today, the author shifts from teaching about Jesus and explaining who Jesus is to calling for a response to Jesus. Um, in preaching terms, we say he moves from exposition to exhortation, or in theological terms, he moves from the indicatives or the facts, the realities of who Jesus is, to the imperatives, the commands, and the invitations. And this section that we're going to begin today and finish up next week is one of the most comforting and delightful and assuring and refreshing sections in all of Scripture. It is worth getting through all that we've got through to get to this point and to be able to unpack this in light of all that we got through. There's glorious implications that we're going to cover today. Um, so we're going to cover verse, chapter 10, Hebrews 10, we're going to cover verses 19 through 23 today, but actually 19 through 25, if uh, you had your read Greek lenses on and you could read the original Greek, you would see that this is all one sentence as the author brings all of this to conclusion. So let's first work through these verses, 19 through 23. I'm going to point out some things as we go, and then we'll consider a couple takeaways. Starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers. So this is just the author's way of referring to the church. To all those who, whose faith and hope are in Christ, both men and women, brothers and sisters. And it'll be helpful as we go on to recognize that he's speaking to those in the church. He's speaking to believers specifically. And the author is now going to sum up the, la the point of the last few chapters using a lot of terminology from the Old Testament to help explain Jesus. Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places, so the holy places, that is the presence of God, which in the Old Testament, in the temple, was located in the innermost part of the temple. To, to go into God's presence, you had to go into the innermost part of the temple, but only the high priest could do that, and him only once a year after he had gone through a number of cleansing rituals and, and, and had to offer sacrifice. So God's presence was guarded and limited because God is holy and mankind is sinful. But now, we see here, brothers and sisters, all God's people have confidence to enter God's presence, to come before God, to draw near to God. How? Going on. By the blood of Jesus. Verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So curtain here, we've come across this already, or veil in Hebrews. Curtain is a reference to the piece of cloth that hung down inside the, the Old Testament temple that separated the most holy place where God's presence was from the rest of it, so that no one could go into the presence of God in an unprescribed way. The curtain was the entrance, the pathway into the presence of God. But now we are told that that is Jesus through his blood and his flesh. Mentions both his blood and his flesh. This is just referring to Jesus, that, that, that he offered his body once and for all. As we read earlier in Hebrews, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He bore the sins of many. As Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the way, the pathway, the, the curtain into the presence of God. Going on, verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, so this is in present tense. Not only has Jesus done something for us in the past, not only did he give his blood, body and blood as a sacrifice for our sins, he is currently ministering to us and for us and with us. He acts as a priest and mediator and a go-between between God the Father and us, which doesn't mean that God the Father needs some arm twisting, needs some convincing to, to love us but simply shows that everything necessary to draw sinful humans like us into God's presence has been done and provided for by God himself. God has done everything we need. No human system or priest is needed. God himself is our priest. So far, this has been one long uh, conditional sentence, actually a couple conditional sentences. Since then, since then, since these things are true, we are reminded of all of these truths and realities and indicatives of the gospel. In and through Jesus, there is no longer anything separating us from God. Our sin cannot separate us. Our guilt cannot separate us. Our weakness or frailness or insecurity or poverty cannot separate us. In Jesus, we have confidence. That's the word he uses. Confidence that God will receive us just as we are. That was a conditional sentence. If that is the case, since we have, and now we get to three sets of imperatives or invitations or implications of this. We're going to cover the first two today, and then the third one we'll cover next week. Verse 22. Let us, so since this is the case, since <laughs> this is what God has done, 
let us draw near. Remember, this is written to the church. So this is calling all of those who have claimed Christ, who confessed her Christ, to continue to draw near to God, to keep turning your face to God, your whole self to God, your heart to God, to come to him. And to do this goes on with a true heart, which means a sincere heart, a genuine heart, not with dishonesty or deception, not for appearances or applause, but wholeheartedly, genuinely draw near to God goes on in full assurance of faith. So this is an assurance and confidence that comes from beholding God, from looking at him, seeing him, all that he's done, who he is to you, and not looking at yourself. This kind of sincerity and genuineness and assurance is not just being authentic or true to yourself, as we might say today, but in looking at him. And goes on with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So the, the sin and guilt bearing death of Jesus cleanses us from the inside, cleanses us in reality. Not that we are never convicted of sin again, but that such conviction cannot condemn us. In Christ, you are truly and wonderfully forgiven, purified made righteous in God's sight. What the Bible calls justification, justified once and for all through Jesus. It says, our bodies and our bodies washed with pure water. This is probably referring to baptism, to Christian baptism, as a, when a new believer goes under the water, uh, outwardly signifying the inner work that God does in cleansing their sin through Jesus. And then one more verse and then we'll draw out some things. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope is Jesus and all that his life, death, and resurrection accomplished. Um, earlier in chapter 3 in Hebrews, we read, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So this call is for believers, those who have claimed Christ, to continue to draw near to God through him and to hold fast to God. And all of this is grounded in the objective reality of who God is. For he who promised is faithful. You're not called to hold fast to him, just hoping that he'll be faithful. You're not called to hold fast in your own strength, on your own resolve. But fingers crossed, your holding fast is motivated by and made possible because he who promised is faithful. Keep your eyes on him, his promises, and his faithfulness. Okay, so that's what this passage says. Um, there is a lot in here that we could focus on, a lot of just wonderful implications we could draw from this. But I want to suggest we draw and focus on two specifically. And I'll give you them here, and then we'll talk through them. First, we see here that there is nothing that can, there is nothing keeping us from drawing near to God if only we would come. There is nothing keeping us from drawing near to God if only we would come. 
We'll work through that in a second. Secondly, we can only come to God through Jesus and his sacrificial death. We can only come to God through Jesus and his sacrificial death. First, first there's nothing keeping us from drawing near to God if only we would come. That, that's what God is saying to us here. We have confidence. We can have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the newing living way opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And that way is still open today, here and now. We can still have this confidence. Jesus' blood is still effective and sufficient. If that is the case, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith knowing that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Really, the, the point is surprisingly simple and clear. If you are in Christ by faith in him, there is nothing that can keep you from the presence of God. There's no barrier. There's no hurdles you've got to get over. There's no curtain. There's no veil. There's no distance. There's no need for priests and sacrifices. There's no need to cleanse yourself, get yourself together, prove your worth, show that you're really sorry for your sins first. Nor need to, do you need to come afraid of how he'll receive you. You don't need to come like the prodigal son, just expecting to be a slave in your master's house. We have confidence to enter his presence. God will not keep you at arm's length, will not push you away, will, will not receive you with some hesitancy, some regret, some lukewarmness. Through the author of Hebrews here, God is the very one inviting us to draw near. As Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is making the invitation again and again. And this invitation and this promise doesn't change when you sin. It doesn't change when you realize once again the depths of evil within your heart. When you make a mess out of your life. When you hurt those you love. When your battle and your struggle with sin and temptation isn't going very well. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to welcome and receive, not the healthy, but the sick, not the righteous, but sinners. That doesn't mean you keep sinning intentionally, but it does mean your sin does not keep you from him. If only you would come. Now, I think some of us, some of you perhaps find it easy to believe God's word about sin. You know that Jeremiah 17.9 is true of you when it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You, you don't have a hard time feeling guilty. But you are perhaps slow or unwilling to believe God's word about his grace and welcome. Perhaps you tend to think that it somehow honors God to be hesitant about receiving his grace or to continue to feel condemnation or to beat yourself up over your sin and guilt and try to do what you can to deal with it yourself. This does not honor God. Now, don't minimize or excuse your sin, but let Jesus do what he came to do. Let God be who he intends and desires to be. That is merciful. Take God at his word. In fact, it 
honors God for you to throw yourself on his grace. It honors God to forgive your sin, even the ugliest, darkest sin that you fear to tell anyone else about. It is honoring to God and making much of him for you to run to him with those things and cast yourself on him. In fact, our refusal to do that, our refusal to come to him with our sin is a result of pride and unbelief, which doesn't honor God. Believe him and give him your sin. Trust that the way is still open, that the cross is sufficient, that he has done everything. And while this is speaking to those in the church, we could say much the same thing to, to anyone. Whether already confessing and claiming Christ or without any claim or confession or unsure, there is nothing keeping you from coming to God and being readily and joyfully received by him except your own refusal to come. The gospel is not for a privileged few, but is meant to go out to the ends of the earth. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's quite simple. But as simple and expansive and open as this invitation is, we must also see that it's exclusive. As simple and open as, and expansive as this welcome is, we must also see that it's exclusive. We can and must only come to God through Jesus and his sacrificial death. This is a second implication. And we clearly see this in the text as well. We can have confidence to enter God's presence by the blood of Jesus. That's the way. That's, that's the only way. Apart from the blood of Jesus, we have no such confidence. Jesus has opened up this new and living way. Jesus is the only way to God, the Father. Jesus himself said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are those who enter by it are many. Lots of people are doing that. That's easy. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. As welcoming and open and free from all obstruction is the presence of God, it is only, through, it is only so through Jesus. You only get there through faith in Jesus, through coming to Jesus. Jesus is the curtain, the gate to God. And many will refuse this. Many will find this an, ob an obstacle. Many will be offended by this, offended by Jesus. The thing is, all of these wonderful invitations that we just read about, we have confidence to enter the holy place of God, draw near with a full assurance of faith. All of these wonderful invitations are sweet and attractive and comforting and refreshing only if we know our need. Only if we know our lostness and deadness and hopelessness. Only if we know that we have no other options, have no other recourse on our own. If we think that there are other ways to the Father, other ways to be right with God, that we don't really need God, we won't find a passage like this comforting. And so for some, you hear, let us draw near with full assurance of faith. 
and you fail to come, not because of any doubt in God's kindness and mercy, of course, God is loving, we, we all believe that, but because of doubt in your utter helplessness and hopelessness apart from him. Because of doubt in his rightful and overarching and all-expansive authority and right and lordship and sovereignty. Some of us don't think we need God, not really, not in the sense that he says we need him. We think he's there as something of a safety net. Hail Mary prayer when life gets hard and hope we hope that he comes through. To some, God is quite small and powerless and distant and distracted and detached. He just wants us to have a good, happy, long life and he might be there for us when we need him. I would suggest this is something of the, the view that most people in our society have. And there, there's a term for it. Perhaps you've heard this term, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, just be a good, moral, upright person, whatever that means to you. Therapeutic, God is there as a kind of therapy if you need him. Your comfort, your care, your health and happiness is all that matters. And then deism, there is a God, but he's kind of out there, takes a hands-off approach to this world. We can't know very much about him, and, that's, and he's just fine with that. This is something what the average person who claims to believe in, a, in God, at least in the Christian God in our society, believes. And it's likely influenced your thinking and behavior as well. It's the air we breathe to some degree. But if this is the case, if God is really like this, then all this talk about Jesus offering himself in death as a sacrifice and opening up a way for us to draw near to God is rather pointless. Because that kind of view of God doesn't require salvation. It doesn't require God to act. And it doesn't require us to cry out to him or draw near to him. He's there if we need him. It's not necessary. If you must draw near to God through Jesus, and only through Jesus, that means you must acknowledge and repent of your sin. Otherwise, the Jesus you claim and confess isn't a savior. This is why John Newton, pastor and author of Amazing Grace, said, my grand point in preaching is to break the hard heart and to heal the broken one. Many of us know our sin and hopelessness and need healed hearts. But many of us are hard and cold and proud and unmoved and unconcerned about God and his will and his ways and need our hearts softened, broken. You might think of it like this. If you were going to remodel a part of your home, there are two parts of the process requiring two very different sets of tools. First, you have to demo. To make sure, sure you have a sound structure and foundation, you have to tear back all of the layers and address the framing and the foundation. And for this, you use heavy tools like a sledgehammer and crowbar. You need to break things apart. But you don't stop there. That would be to leave it no better, perhaps leave it worse than when you started. You would only expose the problems and weaknesses, but not address them. You have to begin putting it back together. And for this, you use a different set of tools, more delicate and precise, tape measure, putty, paint, drills. 
Likewise, the gospel does two things, and it must do two things if it is going to heal us. First, it must soften or break the hard heart. It shows the all-expansive glory of our Creator God, His rights and His authority, His Lordship, the goodness and love of God, and it exposes and convicts us of our sin and our rejection of Him of the ways that we make him small and ourselves great. It breaks down these walls with crowbars and sledgehammers. But it doesn't stop there. This is all for the sake of truly healing and mending and putting back together and bringing new life. Uh, God, isn't, God isn't about mere cosmetic improvements, just putting layers of paint over moldy, decaying walls or filling the gaps of a cracked foundation. God is looking to heal us completely from the inside out, which first requires exposing the issues that need healing. And so for all of us at some point, we need our hard hearts broken and softened and exposed. We need to see our true condition. We need to let God rip open our hearts and expose their true condition to see that Jeremiah 79 is true of us all. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, of course, this is very easy to affirm about other people. None of us have that problem. But we must, above all else, see that this is, first and foremost, true in my own heart, before God. All of us, at some point, must be humbled before God as we truly see Him and see ourselves before Him. But God doesn't intend to, God doesn't intend to leave us there. That would, in fact, be much, too much to bear. And that's where this passage comes in. To those willing to confess Jeremiah 17.9, to those willing to confess Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then this passage offers all the comfort and assurance in the world. Let us, we Jeremiah 17.9 kind of people, Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with a hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure, washed with pure water. We need this assurance of grace. We need this confidence that God will receive us. Whenever the structure and foundation of our hearts is broken and exposed, rotten and decaying, whenever you know your unworthiness to draw near to God on your own, whenever you are unsure of how he will receive you like the prodigal son, we need to hear and believe that in Jesus there is nothing keeping you from coming to God and from him receiving you with overflowing joy and welcome if you would only come. We read that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. Joy over sinners coming to God. Not over those who think that they don't need God. But joy over those who recognize their need and run to and cling to and cast themselves on God as their only hope. And the angels in heaven rejoice. And God is glorified. 
We're told later in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So as Jesus is going to the cross and knows full well is coming and all of the pain and, and the separation from the presence of God that he's going to experience in our place, Jesus has joy knowing what is to come. And surely part of that joy is the welcome that he was going to offer to all of us who would come and of us living with him for all eternity. And so God himself does the renovation that our hearts need. God himself pays the penalty for our sin, satisfies the justice it demands. God himself overcomes everything that separates us from himself by dying in the place of our sin, bearing the just judgment of our sin in the person of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, one last thing here. If this is written to the church, to those who are already in Christ, as we saw that it was, then the message isn't, just make sure you're converted. Just make sure you've said a prayer or trusted in Christ at one point in time, and then you're good. No. The message is, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering until the end. This is ultimately about how we endure and persevere and make it to the end. We've seen this again and again in the book of Hebrews. Having seen your need for Christ and having seen the all-sufficiency and goodness of Christ and what God has done in and through him, beware of forgetting that. Beware of moving on from that. Beware of turning somewhere else. At no point in the life of a Christian does your confession change. At no point does the basis for your confidence to enter God's presence and your assurance in God change. It is always in Christ and Christ alone. And the thing is, this requires diligence and effort and persistence. Otherwise, we wouldn't have all of these warnings that Hebrews gives us and all of these invitations. There are countless temptations to stop holding fast. And these will come from out there in the world, and they will come from in here, in your own heart, as we saw from earlier in Hebrews. You can be deceived by people out there, and you can be deceived by yourself and your own sin. This is why, in part, we have the next two verses, which we're going to cover next week, but I'm going to leave them with you today. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We gather together just like this on a weekly basis to be reminded that this is the case, that the way is open reminded of who God is and what he's done for us, who he is to us in Jesus, and then to stir up one another to hold fast through all of the temptations, all of the tendencies and deceptions both out there and within here, and to urge one another to keep on, keep on drawing near to God in full assurance of hope, because he who promised is faithful. Let's pray.